Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, reminding you all to go in order. Remember, this podcast is meant to go in order to give you context for what we're going to talk about. Now, we're actually re-recording an episode that we did a long time ago before the Year of Polygamy podcast started. It's one that people have asked for over and over and over again. And right now, the FMH podcast is down and we're working on getting all of that back up. The server that was hosting it, Whitefields, crashed and uh, they were unable to recover the login information for me. So we have to restore it one episode at a time. So we're working on that. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about a really important event in the Latter-day Saint overall restoration and Mormon history. And that is the succession crisis. How people get power after Joseph Smith uh, is, is killed. Who takes over? And this is one of the biggest questions that happens in the Mormon movement, in my opinion, uh, that causes some of the most controversy. As we know, there are so many hundreds of Mormon breakoff groups. I just actually went to lunch today and learned uh, about a new one with a group that is both following the Snufferite movement and are polygamists. So there continues to be more and more and more breakoff groups because our authority is messy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to sort of set the scene why this is so complicated, why this happens. And I've brought back a lot of the all-stars that did the original podcast. So I'm so excited to have my friends back, people who I respect and trust and who have been my good friends all along the way. So I'm going to introduce them one by one and let them tell about themselves. Ben Park, will you say hello? And first of all, will you explain that you're not my husband and you're not my brother? <laughs> as much as I would love to have some familial connection to Lindsay, um, we, we descend from two different park lines. Um, I'm Ben Park. I'm currently an assistant professor of American religious history at Sam Houston State University, uh, which is located about an hour north of Houston. Um, I've worked on a number of Mormon history projects in the past. I currently serve as an associate editor for the Mormon Studies Review. And uh, starting this summer, I'll be serving on the executive board for the Mormon History Association. And uh, my interests in this topic are, are plentiful. I'm currently working on a political history of Nauvoo. Excellent. And we've known each other for almost a decade now, it seems. Yeah, it seems like we, we go back a ways. You've, you've been carrying my weight for quite a while. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how we'll frame it. I like that. Everything that you are, you owe to me. Can we say that? I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> you, I love how you went on to get a PhD and I went on to podcast. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> that, that just means I speak to a much more narrow set of people than you do. Well, I'm glad you're, you're coming back to talk today. Ben is great. Um, do you want to talk about your blog that you do that goes viral all the time? Sure. Uh, I, one of those annoying people to when you ask about blog, I, I could say, which one? Um, I, uh, I contribute to Juvenile Instructor, which is a Mormon history blog. Uh, lots of uh, young scholars contribute to that. Currently, we're running a summer book series on Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's new book, Houseful of Females, which is probably of interest to listeners here. So please, uh, every Monday, we have a new uh, post that'll cover one or two chapters from the book. And then I also do a lot for my own uh, personal blog, Professor Park's blog, where I survey the field of religious and Mormon history. Awesome. And we'll make sure that we link to that. And then uh, we also have Danielle Mooney, who I've known as long as I've known Ben. Danielle's a good friend of mine. Danielle, can you say hello? Hi. 
Do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. I live in Boston with my husband and my daughter. Uh, I'm a stay-at-home parent and uh, working on knocking off some grad school prereqs. And in the meantime, also working uh, with ordained women. I'm on the board of ordained women advocating for women's ordination in the LDS church. And I really enjoy uh, reading about LDS and Mormon history in my in my free time <laughs> for fun. Well, and that's why we have you on. So Danielle's <laughs> podcasted with me on the FMH podcast quite a bit. And so hopefully we'll get that back up. And then returning back for another is my good friend, John Hamer. John, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay. Very happy to be back. So tell us about yourself. Uh, so I live in Toronto, Canada, uh, where I'm pastor of the uh, downtown Toronto Congregation of Community of Christ. I've also um, served as the historian for Eastern Canada in the church, and I've been called to be a 70 in the church. I do a lot of podcasting. I podcast on Infants on Thrones and a lot of other guests on a lot of other podcasts and occasional blogging and that kind of thing too. And I guess for the um, for this particular topic, in addition to representing one of the alternate churches, um, uh, we also have done, also did with uh, my friend Neil Bringhurst. We edited a, um, a collection of histories of the different branches of the movement called Scattering of the Saints, and put together a conference for the John Whitmer Historical Association on that topic. Well, perfect. I think we've got a great panel to talk about this. And we, again, we recorded this, you guys recorded this about four or five years ago, and now we're doing it again for the Year of Polygamy podcast. So, Ben, why don't you start us off, explain, set the scene for us, tell us what the succession crisis is, we can talk about why it's important, and give us some context about what's going on in the larger American frontier. Sure. Um, I think it's important to remember when we talk about the schisms within the LDS church that this was a broader phenomenon going on in American religious history. In fact, there's a pretty famous article that was written on American religious history that spoke about how the period between 1815 and 1845 is the most innovative and expansive period of new religious movements and religious groups, um, which just so happens to coincide with the first 30 years of our church, right? So I, I think it's important to note that this very idea of being in a religious marketplace to where you have the right as a as an American citizen to choose who your religious leader is going to be, in some ways, that was kind of a novel subject during this time. This this was an idea that was part of the American political culture, too, and the capitalistic order and the new religious world, where people had the ability to make decisions on what societies am I going to be part of? What's What groups are going to reform this new world? How are we going to associate together? Uh, and this led to many breakoff groups, both those who are within the Protestant mainstream and those who critique the Protestant mainstream. So it would make sense that the very groups that dissent from mainstream American culture, like the Mormons, witness the same dynamic within their own faith tradition that their own faith tradition was a representative of. And so from the very beginning of the LES Church, you had people who, just like they exercised their right to 
uh, break away from the Methodists or the Baptists when they felt they weren't fulfilling their expectations for what a charismatic religious group should be. So too, when they were following Joseph Smith, that, you know what, this wasn't what I signed up for. This wasn't what I expected, and I'm ready to break off. And of course, this is going to be even more the case as the Mormon church itself evolves, and at every step of the way where it moves to a new uh, stage in its development, there are going to be people who say, no, 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 you're you're moving a bit too far for us. You need to slow down. We might need to move back to a previous age of simplicity. And every time Joe Smith would introduce a new doctrinal or institutional uh, uh, mandate or development, there were some that were like, this is a corruption of the simplicity or the originality of the gospel that I originally uh, found appealing. And so even before Nauvoo, which I know we're going to focus on the Nauvoo succession period a a bit today, even before they got to Nauvoo, there is already an intellectual uh, genealogy of dissent and schism that was only perpetuated and expanded rather than newly invented after Joseph Smith's death. Excellent. And I want you guys, uh, John and Daniel, to feel like you can cut in any time and say what you want to say to respond to that, too. Yeah, well, that's an important you know, point that, I mean, a, a lot of times we think of just everything happening at the succession crisis because of uh, none of the churches that emerged prior to the succession crisis continued to exist down to this day, you know, and so, but, and so we think of that maybe as the origin of this, but as Ben mentions, you know, there have been a bunch of different uh, conflicts as the movement is rolling on, and as some people think it's going in the wrong direction. There, you know, the the big big moment of schism before that had been, you know, with the fall of the Kirtland Church, where the um, the people around uh, Warren Parish and also Martin Harris and all of them, you know, ended up staying in Kirtland and reorganizing their church, going back to the old name, the original name, Church of Christ, in Missouri. They lost the Whitmer family and all the people that are kind of loyal to them, uh, the witnesses. And, and other people had already organized churches leading up to the, the succession crisis. So George Hinkle had had a church that he'd reorganized that was going on at the time. And of course, William Law had had the Reform Mormon Church right there in Nauvoo, which is one of the things that precipitated uh, the martyrdom. I was just going to say that also the LDS church um, in its early days benefited from breakoffs from other uh, young religious movements. Um, in, including some really significant uh, church members who came over to that LDS church from particularly from um, the Campbellite movement, uh, like Sidney Rigdon, and um, a large number of converts to the church in the early years were from breakoff groups. So the LDS uh, early Latter-day Saint church and movement was engaged in this early religious kind of, I'm thinking of it like a series of streams and creeks that were feeding and crossing and separating from one another. And the church was very much entwined in that system. So that's a, that's a good point, Danielle, that we also benefited from people breaking off. And, you know, the early missionaries in the LDS, in the Latter-day Saint movement, were going around and engaging in different types of worship with other congregations. And then sometimes the entire congregation would convert and things like that. My question to you all is, do you think that there is something unique in the sense that I, right now I was talking to, I mentioned that I went to uh, lunch with a snufferite 
Um, and th- they hate that name, but that's the best name I have right now. Maybe a follower of the remnant. And what they were saying is it's easier for people from fundamentalist movements in the LDS church in Mormonism to not convert when there's a new breakoff. But they were trying to argue that for the reason why Denver Snuffer is so popular in the LDS movement right now is we are not used to seeing so many schisms. Of course, they've been happening, but we're sort of oblivious to them. And um, I don't know if that's true or not, but what I was going to ask is if you thought that how the saints would have contextualized new new prophets and new leaders popping up all the time, would that have been normal for them? Absolutely. That would have been very normal. Um, it, as Danielle aptly pointed out, I mean, they there was a pattern in early America to where if you didn't like what your preacher was teaching, you break off and do another and and form another church. And I, I you see this especially in the Methodist church, which is where a large number of Mormons came from, especially a large number of Mormon leaders came from. And these there were a, a dozens of these Methodist schisms that happened in the 18 teens, 1820s, 1830s over issues like baptism, over issues like ecclesiastical authority, over issues like slavery, where it, that was the American way. If you did not like what your minister is doing, then I'm going to go and establish my own church. Now, what ends up becoming interesting in the LDS tradition is because as the LDS church becomes more institutionalized around a priesthood hierarchy, you then have to become more creative or sophisticated with your claims of how are you going to trace your priesthood lineage back to some original restoration moment. Now, you don't see this in the in the first few versions of schism because most of the people who broke off said there was no priesthood thing that you need to maintain. In fact, the introduction of these new priesthood hierarchies was the corruption of the movement. But as you get to late Missouri... As you get to Nauvoo, you, when you break off, your break off can't just be based around different doctrines, different personalities, different people, but it has to be based off of this was a corruption of this priesthood line, or this was a corruption of the prophetic mandate or the prophetic mantle. And so that's the probably the, the Mormon uh, nuance or the Mormon change that's put on a, a very American phenomenon. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I want people to understand that maybe how, uh, maybe a Latter day Saint listening to this podcast might say, Oh gosh, if someone came and stood up and challenged, you know, Thomas Monson or something, I wouldn't believe it. But people understood authority and leadership in the church a lot differently back then. So maybe we can set that up for them, how people would have seen Joseph Smith's role, the mantle, as you said, and priesthood. Absolutely. There's actually a cache of documents that uh, a friend of mine, Robin Jensen, and I are are slowly working on a uh, documentary history of the succession crisis. So it's somewhat on hold right now. But we've collected this collection of of letters from converts of, on the East Coast, those who would have maybe had a firsthand experience with the missionary who came through and converted them to the gospel, were baptized. And then the missionary is like, toodaloo so long and is gone and then they don't really have much contact with an institutional church after this and then they start getting all these reports in 1845 and 1846 about this crisis over authority and and who should be in charge of the church and you have all these people who end up writing letters saying um 
I did not know that I was supposed to cast my allegiance to someone. Uh, I, d- I don't understand the, the very concept of this priesthood succession crisis because that's not how I understood what I was getting into when I accepted the Book of Mormon as a new restored scripture and I accepted the, the authority to baptize and this new understanding of the second coming, which is around the door. And so, yeah, I, I think this... This idea of prophetic authority being the center point around which we base our religious affiliation, we sometimes read that back into context where it was not as clear as it is today. It would have also, wait, now since it's so centralized, right, and so since the, the, the power is now corporate and it is all owned by, you know, Corporation Central and everything like this, Corporation Soul in, in, in Utah, it is completely different. Like we've been saying, if you had a little congregation in New Jersey or wherever it would be, you really, you, everything that you have, one, you don't have a building, you're meeting in cottage, you know, like in, in somebody's house. And you, the only contact you have with the institutional church, whichever it would be, is when, when the missionary, when a missionaries or elders are coming through with the, with the times and seasons and you're getting the paper and they're maybe preaching and that's how you're staying in touch or writing letters to each other and that's how you're staying in touch otherwise you're you're not in touch so i always think that when we we since we tend to focus like laser beams on joseph smith and in mormon history and then in to a lesser extent than other leaders and of course only headquarters but if the experiences of what most of our experiences is not living at headquarters but rather living in a in a congregation living in a branch somewhere living in a ward in utah um nowadays as they call call it um that in fact, I think that when the succession is happening and the schism is happening, it's not that everybody in all these branches suddenly becomes a Strangite or a Brighamite or a Rigdonite or anything like that, but rather they continue to be members of the you know the Latter Day Saint movement, and then there are multiple headquarters that they're not sure who they're to have their allegiance to, and it depends on which missionary comes to town, and then they suddenly all become Strangites, or then the next time a Brighamite comes to town, they're all Brighamites now. So they're um, you know in, in general life goes on in the in the little congregations i had a question to just to clarify about the conversation you had with the followers of the remnant am i understanding correctly that their impression was that lds church was more prone to schisms than fundamentalist offshoots Yes, they were saying that they are more prone to, um, I guess, charismatic prophets stepping up. Because uh, we, we were talking about it's it's very unusual to have uh, people who practice plural marriage to be drawn to Denver Snuffer, who is, you know, known to not be teaching polygamy. In fact, he's rewritten DNC 132 to sort of cut out polygamy. And so we were talking about that entire thing. And they said, you know, Denver Snuffer is teaching a lot of Mormon fundamentalist values, but the reason why people don't follow him is we see these kind of guys, you know, they're a dime a dozen. They'll break off from one group and then break off from another group. And they were arguing that, you know, LDS people aren't as used to seeing that. So, again, I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting uh, question. Oh, okay. So LDS people are less used to seeing it. Yes, and therefore more likely okay. to think it's a bigger deal. Yeah, I I think it is hard to say that, and this is related to what Ben has been saying in particular, I think it's really difficult, I think, to say that they're less used to seeing it because I think that what you see is largely defined by the paradigm you are in. And so 
members of the LDS church are really largely taught to also not contemporarily in particular due to our history of so many schisms over time to actually no longer see them, that it's not exactly that these groups are schisms related to one another. But I know that my impression growing up as a young Mormon was that these groups weren't of us, that schism was language that gave too much credibility even to what the various offshoots of Mormonism over time that schism created too much of a relationship between us. And so I largely would have, I would have said that they, I would have asserted that they didn't exist, that there wasn't schisms from Mormonism, because if you left Mormonism, as I knew it, if you left the LDS church, you weren't Mormon anymore. So you couldn't have Mormon schisms. If that's the paradigm that you're operating within, it would be easy to to simply not see when breakoffs are happening. Does that make sense? Or was that just very confusing? I thought that made sense. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, think, I think that I makes think, sense. I think that that's like you say, the central attitude from, you know, I mean, I think that that's a the regular narrative. I mean, that you're, you were being very nice not to use the word apostasy and apostates, right? <laughs> but, but I mean, in other words, the paradigm is, is that everybody who leaves is an apostate. Well, and I'm interested in how that word interacts. Let's let's talk about how the word apostate interacts with what we're talking about because it sort of develops as a very useful tool to keep people in line depending on the group that you're in, you know, especially with my experience at the FLDS, apostate has a very uh, acute meaning similar to that in the LDS church. But I think it, it was a meaning that Joseph Smith might not have applied. I mean, people were excommunicated and then brought in a few days later or went out and in and out and in all the time. And I just, I think Joseph Smith's church was, as you guys were talking about, would it, would it be fair to say his idea was more of a movement? It was more equitable as far as your involvement goes. It wasn't so hierarchical, although towards the end of Joseph Smith's life, it does start to build up these hierarchies and these quorums and councils and all of these things. I would say that it's a, that you see it ramping up over the entirety of the 14 years, that slowly and slowly a greater degree of bureaucracy and hierarchy is developed and built in, but that being part of the church while the hierarchy and bureaucracies are in development would make the entire system appear more malleable to influence to you because you have seen it shift over the course of what is relatively not a particularly long period of time. 14 years is not, in historical terms, a very long period. And so there was a relatively large amount of change happening within people's ready memories that's a, that's a good way to start the f- the framing of it. Why don't we talk about the actual events? Can we, John Hamer? Do you want to start going into who the players are that we're going to be talking about? Um, sure. So what we're talking about is you know kind of at the moment of Joseph Smith's assassination, uh, who now is going to be leading the church, and so the assistant president of the church, his brother Hiram, um, is killed at the same exact moment and i guess i think it probably well john actually can i interrupt you for one minute because you just made me think of something before we answer that question 
why if if the church was more equitable it was more of a movement it's starting to ramp up why is this even an issue i mean i i think it's pretty obvious but to sort of bridge that gap ben or whoever wants to take it why does this become an issue at all to begin with sure i can be brief and then i'm i'm sure john and uh, danielle can uh, correct me i The issue whenever you base a religious movement around a charismatic figure is when you lose that charismatic figure, that core is gone and everything is tempted to spiral out of control, to use a very stretched metaphor. Joseph Smith never... We like to think that the succession of from president to president of the Quorum of the Twelve becoming the next prophet was clear-cut, where... That wasn't really the case. Um, There were multiple lines of potential succession during Joseph Smith's era that he flirted with at one time or or another. Um, Some scholars have posited that there were as many as nine different versions of a uh, succession pattern that Joseph Smith preached during his lifetime. I think that's a bit stretched uh, because some... Uh, avenues were much more valid than others, but at the very least, there were several very um, possible valid forms of succession after Joe Smith's death, and perhaps even even more succinct and even more important, there were people who had very different understandings. So even if Joseph Smith might have had in his mind what the succession should look like, his followers did not. And so what you end up having is just mass confusion after Joseph Smith's death. Uh, and there's a vacuum that many people have the tools with which they can construct their own claims for authority. Does that give enough of a background? Yeah, that's perfect. And that will lead up into what John Hamer is saying. Sorry to interrupt, John Hamer. Oh, that's okay. I mean, I also interpreted your question when you're saying, well, why are we even doing, you know, why is this even a thing is possibly, I mean, you'd been talking about, okay, well, there had been this growing, or Danielle had been talking about that there had been this growing centralization of authority. When the church starts, they just have elders, um, teachers, and priests, and and Joseph Smith is merely the first elder, and Oliver Cowdery is the second elder. Uh, And then um, Ben and I, you you know, have blogged, I'm on, I think he still blogs, on a and a blog called By Common Consent, because that was already, in the at the beginning of the church, part of the authority ideas. So one of the authority ideas in tension in the, in the first 14 years there is, does the church, is the church ruled by by common consent, by the by a branch conference, by a um, state conference, by the general conference of the church, or is it um, part of this ever-increasing, uh, centralizing church authority structure and so those are the two things that are in tension with each other and at by and as daniel kind of mentioned you know by the end it really had kind of tilted pretty strongly in favor of the um of all the power had kind of been centralized to joseph smith where by the end he's mayor he's head of the court he's lieutenant general of the militia he's everything <laughs> you know so many president of the church all the other things that he is you know so, so now he's gone so now what do we do <laughs> so <laughs> you know Okay, Hamer, lead us into okay. who who steps up. So the issue then, like I say, is that um, you know Hiram Smith, who had been really the closest 
leader next to Joseph, who at different times, Joseph had said things like, well, I'm, I'm stepping down from this or that. And I want, you know, you guys all have to listen to Hiram now. And he had special roles in the first presidency as assistant president of the church. And also he was also presiding patriarch of the church and whatever. And it's not clear how sometimes that office had been called by Joseph Smith extravagantly the most exalted or office in the church of the leading office in the church. And that wasn't necessarily clear what it, what it was. Uh, anyway, so if Hiram had survived, probably it's pretty clear that he would have ended up being the successor, but he died then at the same time too. Meanwhile, all of more or less all the leaders are um, on are campaigning for Joseph Smith for president, uh, even though we tend to kind of write that out of the story. That was really the most important thing uh, going on. Joseph Smith, I think, really thought he had a chance or thought through different means he was going to be able to be president. In any event, he had everybody out campaigning for that purpose. And so there's also a little bit of a leadership vacuum going on. Um, Sidney Rigdon, who was his vice presidential candidate, uh, had had to move to Pennsylvania in order to establish a different residency under the U.S. Constitution to run for pre- vice president on Joseph Smith's ticket as president. So, and then, and meanwhile, other other leaders, the apostles, were campaigning. Um, so, in terms of who's who's uh, left around, um, the I, I've argued in before that um, the first presidency is probably the most natural or successor, you know, since um, Sidney Rigdon is the last remaining member of the first presidency. And so he's still in the first presidency and he's still alive. Um, the in, in the church's legal incorporation document, legally incorporated in the state of Illinois, um, it says that Joseph Smith is the trustee and trust for the church and in, to be followed by his successors in the first presidency. And anyway, so that, so in that way, so Sidney Rigdon certainly has a, a strong a position to go with next to the um, the apostles. So they're the next, according to one of the, let's say the canon law of the church, the Doctrine and Covenants, um, DNC at the time, the 1835 DNC section three um, is the on priesthood. And on, uh, the on priesthood section says that the, the council, the presiding high council, I'm sorry, the um, traveling high council of the 12 apostles is equal in authority to the first presidency. And so uh, the apostles then, in theory, are you know have equal authority in practice. They have been in charge of the everywhere where there's not a stake, so they're in charge of the missionary work. Uh, also, have in equal authority are the are the counts are the seventy or the presidents of seventy, and so in theory they're they're also in equal authority according to that same section on priesthood, um, and and so then. Anyway, so maybe the 70, but the 70 are subordinated in their normal role to the 12, so they probably aren't and never did were a threat uh, to the 12. And then finally, there's the standing or presiding high council, uh, which is also, according to that same section of the Doctrine and Covenants, in equal in authority. And so um, anyway, and that was led by uh, William Marks, who's the president of the headquarters stake. And so between that, Brigham Young, the president of the 12, William Marks, uh, those are kind of the main, um, and Sidney Rigdon and the first presidency, those are sort of the main contenders in the initial round. Uh, but then there's other different, you know, possibilities that emerge, um, you know, as time goes on. Uh, the argument that eventually gets put forward um, by William Smith uh, is that in the same exact way that um, uh, the office of presiding patriarch of the church um, was passed down uh, by lineage, 
so because, um, for example, in the Book of Mormon, it suggests that, uh, or it says that uh, Joseph Smith is of an august lineage that uh, is descended from Joseph of Egypt, um, that and that Hiram, you know, succeeded uh, directly from Joseph Smith Sr. without any intervention of the of church authority to the um, presiding patriarchate that William Smith should be you know presiding patriarch and possibly and then he would argue presiding patriarch over the whole church and, and so that he should be in charge of everything um, in the same in that same venue in terms of Smith family there had been several blessings patriarchal blessings and other blessings that from Joseph Smith senior Joseph Smith that Joseph the third would um, uh, eventually be uh, in his father's place as prophet of the church in the future. Um, meanwhile, uh, there had also been earlier, um, Ben was mentioning there had been all kinds of succession alternatives right after the Zion's camp march way back when, uh, in the earlier part of the church, um, uh, there has this another section of the DNC where it said, if Joseph Smith falls, there shall be, uh, he'll shall have no power save it be to appoint another in his stead. He, he read that scripture at the end of the Zion's camp march. And he says, people have been wondering about where that, you know, who that person is. Well, there's the man. He points to David Whitmer. And then he ordained David Whitmer to be a successor. Uh, David Whitmer is not a member of the church at this point, And so therefore he's not part of the mainline church anyway. He's not active. Uh, and so he's not in a position to do that. But later on, he emerges as, as a potential uh, successor based on that. And then another thing that has happened is that more recently, one of the last things that Joseph Smith has done, the priesthood had been restored in 1829, the church in 1830. Now there's this new thing that gets restored in, in 1844 called the kingdom. And so the kingdom uh, has, has as part, its part a, a secret council, constitution of the kingdom, the, often called the Council of the Fifty. And so then there are different people on the, you know, on the Council of the Fifty who think that, that, uh, that they're their role there, or the keys that have been given out there, um, they should be able to be the successor, or that that has some involvement in the succession. So, so this so is there's all those different possibilities. This <laughs> is important when learning about fundamentalism because if you see how some of the groups claim their authority, like the Council of Friends, and how they see themselves as holding certain keys, uh, as opposed to the LDS leadership holding other keys, it makes sense why there's some flexibility historically speaking. But John, you're basically saying that there are a few struggles and I'm being, I'm going to reduce what you say and tell me if I'm missing anything. So there was a, a case to be made legally based on the actual legal entity, uh, the trustee and trust of the church who could take over after Joseph Smith. There's a case spiritually with uh, priesthood authority and, and power and things like that. There is a case to be made through the bloodline, through a lineage of Joseph Smith's family. Am I missing anything else? Well, those are the ones I mentioned. I think that there would also be a case that could be made for by common consent so that the general conference of the church could, could select the next uh, leader. And if that would have been a possibility in, in part, uh, uh, when when the showdown happens on in August between um, Brigham Young and Sidney Rigdon, in some ways it, it was the the vote of the congregation there in Nauvoo that really was decisive in terms of who was going to be able to take control of the headquarters. Um, and then finally, the last one that emerged a little bit after the fact, or it emerged, I guess, right at the same time as what he claimed anyway later, is that um, is would be the potential for direct divine intervention. And so James Strang ex uh, later asserted that um, 
that at the moment of uh, Joseph Smith's uh, martyrdom, an angel appeared to him and ordained him to be, uh, you know, the, hold the prophetic office to be prophet, seer, revelator, and translator of the church. And so that would be another potential option that ended up um, that ended up being pretty successful. So. Well, and we just did a podcast on the history of the One Mighty and Strong that comes from uh, DNC 85, and that sort of leaves open this other uh, avenue like you're talking about, which is someone, the church is supposed to be out of order at some point, and someone could come rescue it. And of course, as we talked about in that episode, some people thought it was Joseph Smith the third who would take that on. Some people thought it was Joseph Smith as his father. Some people thought it would be someone new. So there are all these avenues for authority to begin with. So who wants to bring us into um, what happens next? Joseph Smith is murdered. What happens next? I'll jump in and fill the silence. Um, well, the first thing that happens is just chaos. Um you have several weeks to where they're not really knowing what to do. Because remember, as John had mentioned, the Quorum of the Twelve were gone campaigning in the East, and Sidney Rigdon, the mem- other member of the First Presidency, was actually in Pennsylvania at the time, try- so trying to establish residency so he could run on the presidential ticket with Joseph Smith as um, a resident of Pennsylvania rather than Illinois, because if you remember, the Constitution requires running mates to be from different states. And so there's really no one there in the city of Nauvoo to take charge. And so you have people like William Clayton and William Marks and others who are sending letters to the Quorum of the Twelve asking, what are we supposed to do now? And so the apostles very quickly return. Sidney Rigdon beats them out. Uh, Sidney Rigdon tries to introduce uh, methods for him to take a guardianship of the church. His original argument is that no one can replace Joseph Smith. He is going to remain the leader from the other side of the veil, but I am going to serve as guardian of the church. Um, but before they, he, he's able to marshal enough support and, and gather everyone together, Brigham Young, Parley Pratt, Wilford Woodruff, and others return. And on the big meeting that John already alluded to on August 8th, they have a general meeting where Sidney Rigdon pleads his case in the morning, and then the Quorum of the Twelve plead their case in the afternoon, they have a vote. Uh, this is where later reminiscences uh, make the myth that Brigham Young transformed into uh, Joseph Smith. But uh, by the way, just a few years ago, for the first time, we were able to uh, reconstruct the uh, a decent report of Sidney Rigdon's appeal that had previously just been written in shorthand and hadn't been transcribed. And then it was published in BYU Studies Quarterly a couple uh, years ago, transcribed by uh, Lejean Carruth and introduced by Robin Jensen. So listeners should go read that because that's fascinating and it hadn't been available to historians before that point. Um, let's link to that let's link to that because the story that i was told was sydney's appeal was long-winded and boring and not charismatic nothing like joseph smith would have given is that correct right um and it was long and it was long-winded um and so i mean it's not a word-for-word transcript but we can at least know what he was arguing which is at least an important piece to this puzzle so what was um, he so, arguing? He was arguing that no one could take Joseph Smith's place. Correct. Say. That Joseph Smith remains the prophet on the other side of the veil, but it is his 
it is his role as the counselor to kind of act as a shepherd, to act as a guardian, to kind of uh, keep things in moving along the way that Joseph Smith had led. Um, Now, when Sidney Rigdon kind of loses this showdown with the Quorum of the Twelve, he starts saying that he's happy to work with the Quorum of the Twelve. He, he plays nice. He says all the right things. But very quickly, he, he, he and the Quorum of the Twelve are going to bump heads. And by October, November, maybe uh, Danielle or, or John would have the dates uh, and their minds better than I do, um, they end up having an excommunication trial of Sidney Rigdon. The main arguments that they had for Sidney was in the last couple of years, Joseph had started this new anointed quorum and, of, and the Council of 50 and introduced polygamy. And in many of these major developments, Sidney had peripherally taken part, but was not central to them. And so, but this was difficult on the corner, on the corner of the 12s part, because everything that they felt was their strongest case for proving that they were the true successor were all secret. And they're having to convince this to a general public who has no idea about these temple rituals, about polygamy, about the Council of 50. And so they end up having to use this coded language and double speak to try to argue and eventually Sigby Rigdon is kicked out he moves back to Pennsylvania he takes his own following and for the next few years he's kind of a, of a thorn in the side and then 1845 uh, what I find interesting with the Council of 50 Minutes that were just released last September is I really contend that it's in the Council of 50 me- Minutes where you see Brigham Young end up taking charge as uh, the leader of this one movement within the Mormon schism. So in the public view, the Quorum of the Twelve uh, seems to be the governing body. And if you remember, a lot of the people who live in Nauvoo at this time are immigrants from the United Kingdom whose first point of contact and first idea of authority were these Quorum of the Twelve. So it seemed like a natural progression for them. So from the public standpoint, the Quorum of the Twelve seemed to be in charge. But the Council of 50 Minutes wh- was really where you see Brigham Young become the domineering uh, power leader that he felt was necessary to control everything. And we would kind of see it more as a tyrannical, if you were to put it in modern day terms, where he was not going to allow any uh, mode for dissent. And and so in the Council of 50, Brigham Young is centralizing authority, not just within the Quorum of the Twelve, but and his own persona. Um, at the same time, the Quorum of the Twelve is working what they feel are the two most important proofs of their succession, the temple and polygamy. Brigham Young and, and um, Heber C. Kimball literally split Joseph Smith's wives down the middle and one takes half and the other takes another half. Uh, they see that as a tangible manifestation, at least those who are in the know that these are those who are those who are taking on the mantle of Joseph Smith. And it mattered that they literally held the keys to the temple, that Joseph Smith spent his last few years emphasizing the role of the temple. And guess what? The Quorum of the Twelve is also the head of the corporation that's putting the temple together. And so 
And when the temple is eventually finished and start and uh, saints go through it, guess what? They go through temple rituals that feature apostles as Peter, James, and John, who are bestowing keys upon them. So now the Quorum of the Twelve not only have the literal keys to a temple, but also the figure of keys of priesthood ordinances. And guess what? They go through these ordinances. They go in the celestial room. And what's the first thing they're going to see? They're going to see the portraits of the Quorum of the Twelve. And so you see this very, uh, very effective method that the Quorum of the Twelve use in a lot of ways to take advantage of what they felt were the um, their primary modes of defense. And I'll let uh, John and, and Danielle talk about the other uh, schismatic groups like William uh, Smith, Joseph's brother, claiming things. And of course, you have the rise of 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 James J. Spring, which comes out of no- nowhere and eventually becomes the most prominent uh, competition for the 12. Well, I do want to dig a little bit more into Brigham's argument just for a minute because uh, my FLDS friends will recognize that Warren Jeffs actually makes similar arguments. He he When he claims power from his own father, Rulin, he does, a, he, in my opinion, takes a page from Brigham Young here. So do you want to talk about Brigham Young's role and then where we get this sort of folk history story about him taking on the mantle of Joseph really quick? Sure. Um, I mean, Brigham Young was... Brigham Young was haunted for the rest of his life with the fear that of that the same thing would happen to him that happened to Joseph Smith, that internal dissent was going to be the root cause of a downfall of the church and the literal death of its prophet. And so he was not going to curry any dissent from any of the followers. And so he was not as lenient in some things. Joseph Smith, when he was in the in the Council of 50, he said, I don't want any dough heads. I want things to be debated. I want things to be contested. He wanted three non-Mormons on the council. And guess what? At the first meeting when Brigham Young takes charge of the Council of 50 after Joseph Smith's death, he removes the three Gentiles. He says, there is no go- going to be no questioning of my authority. Um, and anytime anyone raised any question, he or Heber C. Kimball or the other closest followers would sh- shoot those down. And though, so Brigham Young saw his primary mode of proving his uh, validity was that I am the successor to Joseph Smith, and I am not going to allow the same kind of dissent that led to Joseph Smith's own demise. I don't know if that w- was what you were wanting, but, but I thought that was a crucial part of the story. No, 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 that's not what I was wanting, but that is, that's good. That's a good piece. Um, well, actually, that is part of it. Does anyone want to add how, the, how this happens, what he's saying, and why people, basically why he wins over Sidney Rigdon? Well, I think Sidney was just really out of it and was not, um, uh, he just did a he just did a terrible job in setting the setting this thing up that he that he asked for right, and so in some ways if he had done so like um, like Ben saying the the twelve are are nominally after this meeting the twelve are all in charge together maybe just as equals of which Brigham's the president of that twelve and yet um, you see immediately in the behind the scenes in the fifty. Uh, in in the regular church institution stuff, Brigham Young is already signing. I think fairly early on his uh, as as acting president of the church, you know, like in f- fairly early and so um, and so and so. What I think that Sidney Rigdon, if he had actually, you know, any, anyway, if he was more sophisticated politically, politically, if he had been 
anywhere near as forcefully forceful in will and and and, and ideas um, as Brigham Young, he could have just started acting, saying, "I'm acting president of the church." He doesn't actually need a vote or anything, you know, because he's the last member of the first presidency. He could just come and start, you know, and just, you know, start running stuff as much and and kind of make them try to stop him, right? And, and anyway, so what he ends up doing with with uh, with making a big long winded speech and kind of being out of it and not uh, um, winning anybody over, uh, the appeal that Brigham Young makes is is much more heartfelt wins all kinds of people over and and afterwards Sidney Rigdon's given a chance to to have a rebuttal speech and he um he picks somebody who then goes ahead and 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 goes for Brigham right or actually goes for the 12 <laughs> so so that day it was a it was a political fiasco and then at that point um you know he he'd lost all his cards so it was a big big mess and mistake so that's the end of him <laughs> so Danielle do you want to say anything I think that it also helps Brigham's claim over Rignan that it was well known among uh, the Mormons that there that Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith uh, had 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 a fraught relationship and that uh, Joseph Smith had signaled uh, publicly in 1843 a serious lack of confidence in Sidney Rigdon when um, he attempted to have Rigdon removed from the first presidency. And that incident was published in the Times and Seasons. So uh, while a lot of the spiritual and religious uh, ritual aspects of claiming power were secrets, this more more political and more uh, public form of authority, what was public and pretty well known that, that Joseph Smith had had lost the same kind of intimacy that he had had with Sidney Rigdon in the earlier years. And so while Joseph and uh, Sidney had started to reconcile shortly before Joseph Smith's death and Sidney was running as Joseph's vice president, he wasn't in as strong of a church authority and church governance position as the Twelve. And the um, other strength to Brigham's claim over Sidney Rigdon's is that Brigham was arguing for the 12 to take over the uh, leadership of the church. In in these uh, early weeks and months following Joseph's death, Brigham wasn't arguing for himself exactly to take on the role as leader of the church, but for the quorum of the 12, which um, would have felt, I think, safer and more familiar to Nauvoo Mormons because next to Joseph and Hiram Smith, there wasn't really an ecclesiastical power in the church to compare uh, with that of the quorum of the 12 and practice anymore. Um, While the high council in uh, Nauvoo was um, named in um, Revelation, which um, we have we talked about as equal in practice, what Mormons saw was that the church was administered through Joseph, Hiram, and the Quorum of the Twelve on on more of a day-to-day basis. Those were the people who were handling affairs and who were conducting the business of the church uh, outside of the stakes of Zion as well. 
And again, this is one of the things that is going to open the doors for fundamentalism later on. They can argue, first of all, we see this with the Council of Friends or even how the Centennial Park sort of runs their council. They don't believe in the one-man rule. And Brigham Young was sort of arguing what fundamentalists might recognize as against the one-man rule, meaning Brigham was saying, now the church belongs to the quorum. It doesn't belong to me. And Warren Jeffs does a similar thing when his father dies. Uh, when his father dies, his father was prophesied to never die or to be restored. Uh, his son, Roy Jeffs, talks about waiting for his grandfather to be restored and resurrected, and they were sort of waiting for that. And uh, it doesn't happen. And so Warren Jeffs comes out and says, you know, I could never replace my father, um, but he is in me and sort of does this one mighty and strong resurrection thing. And other fundamentalist groups will take what Brigham said and use sort of the council idea, too. So the rhetoric that was being used is still being used today in how different breakoff groups get authority. So um, one of the things I was going to ask you guys, though, is where does Emma Smith fit into all of this? Where does her opinion fit? Because obviously she has strong feelings about Sydney and Brigham Young. And how were people responding to those? Hang on real quick, though, before we move on to Emma, um, I w something else that I thought that maybe you were getting at when you were talking about um, Warren Jeffs and his father is doesn't Warren during his speech claiming succession following his father's death appear to take on his father's Mantle. appearance yeah that's another story that happened okay. a lot of a lot of people there testified that that he looked like his father so and again this is not uncommon in fundamentalist stories as they're trying to go back to their roots they take these stories and sort of reappropriate them to modern times and um, there are stories of warren jeffs now in prison being fed human flesh like joseph smith was said to have been fed human flesh and things like that and so it's always interesting to me you know um i was at mha and i asked a panel with richard bushman and jan ships and robin jensen and paul reeve about about the Council of 50 minutes, because the arguments that they were making um, for the Council of 50, I said, you know, does this apply to Warren Jeffs and his followers? And I think people rolled their eyes at that because bringing up Warren Jeffs to Joseph Smith is like this. I, I say it's like this ex-Mormon Godwin's law. But really, this is what Warren Jeffs does is he deliberately tries to pattern himself after these early leaders and they follow Warren was really trying to pattern his current leadership structure after the Council of 50. They use the same uh, rhetoric. They use the same structure and all of those kinds of things. And so I think that whatever happened here is going to be mirrored over and over and over again, because if you believe on the premise that these leaders had some early authority or early truth, if you can recreate that, that somehow strengthens your authority today, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, and I wanted to bring that up because I think we maybe rushed past this aspect of Brigham's claim or, or kind of quickly, but one of the aspects that ultimately served Brigham was that when he gave his remarks in the August conference um, following Rigdon to a number of people in the audience, he seemed to be transfigured into the form of Joseph Smith, or at least that was the common um, story that people shared that they had felt that they had witnessed 
that happen. And so Warren making that same claim is, is hearkening back to the succession of Joseph to Brigham in an effort to strengthen his claim, just as Brigham, the, the story and the idea that Brigham was transfigured into the form of Joseph Smith strengthened uh, his claim that the 12 and uh, he as the president of the 12 were meant to lead the church. Yes, thank you. That's that's precisely where I was getting. And I don't think it's on accident. I think that maybe, Ben, you can answer this. Do you think Brigham was uh, reappropriating maybe some of Joseph Smith's language and rhetoric and beliefs in the way that he presented his claims? It's a good question. Um, I, I have a hard time thinking he did just because they had such different speaking styles. For, for those who might have thought that Brigham chain appeared as Joseph Smith, and most of those accounts come from quite later, um, I imagine they, they, they were basing that on him at least looking presidential, to use a term that we use in modern day politics. Uh, someone who went up and took control and looked authoritative. And I think that's something that Joseph Smith would have done. And so maybe Brigham would have mimicked that as well. John, do you want to say anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. I mean, because that then becomes a major story in the tradition, that's why it would still in the in the Brighamite tradition anyway. It's that and then it's for the other Brighamite churches like Warren Jeff's um, church. Then that would be a tradition that they'd want to harken back to and emulate. Um, I mean, like Ben was saying, the the stories are late, and I think that the reason why they become um, more important later is because the, the stories become important when when a pretender emerges. So that essentially once um, once Joseph the Third has been ordained to be prophet of a of a rival headquarters organization of the church, then it's more. Then at that point, people are looking at well how, the situation as it already now exists in Utah, where we do have Brigham Young as the as the leader of the church, as opposed to you know very overtly as opposed to the twelve, which was what would have happened at the time, you know, or at least the what the what he was arguing for at the time. So, okay, so um, let's go back to the question with Emma Smith. Does does anyone want to answer where she would have fit into this? Emma supported the idea that William Marks would be uh, should be take over as leader of the church or as trustee of the church's property. Uh, he'd been the again the the president of the headquarters stake. And so, um, but Marx was not the kind of a guy who, in, in, at any different time, he, he actually, he ended up joining ultimately with lots of different factional leaders in his long career in, in the movement. And so he was not the kind of guy who felt like, I think, to step forward and be the, the head person. He was much better, to, much more willing to support somebody. And he's argued that Sidney Rigdon had the better claim as the member of the first presidency. And so that kind of neutralized um, the succession option that Emma maybe would have supported or would have preferred. Uh, meanwhile, she has had to deal with, I mean, she's having to deal with much more, a very serious, you know, familial grief, you know, so the loss of her husband. And then also the reality of just your legal circumstances of where women are, are have to deal with in 19th century America. So uh, for her, she has to go back to Carthage, the county seat, um, you know, where her husband has been murdered uh, in order to both secure her own title to her own property and also just to be allowed to have, be a legal guardian of her own children 
um, as a woman. And so she has to go through, go through all that kind of fighting, you know, so she's very busy worrying about all those kind of, those kind of issues that she has to deal with. So I think she's it's also, also pregnant by the way. So <laughs> she's, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. Anyway, so she's also, you know, hasn't yet had given birth to, you know, David Hiram. So the last, last of her children. So, right. I think that's very important that the live reality there sets an important context. I think it's also important to remember that she was traumatized by polygamy the last few years. And she saw in Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve, a perpetuation of the practice that she felt was the, the darkest moment of both the church's existence and her fami- and her relationship with Joseph Smith. And so whenever she would see a Quorum of the Twelve or Brigham Young and others, especially as they're expanding the polygamy practice and after Joseph Smith's death, um, she saw those two things in tandem, the Quorum of the Twelve and polygamy. And, and she was ended up being, re- as she was repulsed by one, she became repulsed by the other. Yeah, I think that's really important because Marx and Rigdon were both opposed to polygamy. And so there was an added appeal to them as successors for Emma. Marx in particular, I think, had been an ally for her in in combating polygamy. She also was dealing with the stress of a great deal of debt and I think had an interest as well because her and Joseph's finances were so deeply enmeshed with the churches so that it was incredibly difficult to determine what was the Smiths and what was the churches, um, including the home that they lived in. And that gave her an added motivation to to seek an ally in the uh, succession of the church who she felt would protect her financial interests and who would help her uh, deal with this looming future of raising as a widow in a time when, you know, there wasn't ready and regular employment available to a woman, all of these, all of these children and um, to deal with all of these debts in order to sort of get a handle on that and to, and to confront a future without a spouse and with all of these financial pressures, she was looking for, I think, also someone who would be sympathetic to that. Uh, and Brigham had not signaled and would prove not to be a particularly uh, helpful ally for her on that front either. Yeah, and I think um, the approach that Brigham Young and the Twelve had as they went over to, to Emma and just said, just sign everything over to us and we'll take care of you. And I think that was a very scary prospect for her because she she didn't trust Brigham Young for a number of reasons. And that that would have made her very vulnerable given all the this conditions that Danielle and, and John already outlined. Um, and, and so that was a... if. Brigham and Emma's relationship was already strained before Joe Smith's death. And if it was strained even more due to the polygamy factor, their pro- their squabbles over um, finances just made it unbridgeable. In fact, there there's evidence that Emma and Brigham did not talk face to face after August of 1844 and that they only spoke through mediaries. And as a result, they were... Uh, it, it was just not a very uh, a fruitful conversation. 
Okay, yeah, and I think that that's important because polygamy really becomes one of the defining struggles in this particular schism, and as we will see in many schisms <laughs> to follow, it is a very controversial issue. But I think I had interrupted a while back John Hamer on the different, the other people that pop up, the other contenders. Do we want to go over that really quick? Well, so the very first, um, you know, so there's already... Prior to the the martyrdom, there's already the Reform Mormon Church with uh, William Law and and Austin Cowles and all the ref- would be reformers who want to purge things like polygamy and the other secret um, theocratic stuff, Council of Fifty, those kind of things. But they are already they've already formed a rival organization, and so they are technically out of the mainline church. Therefore, at the time, and so I think it's even like um, a couple days, like after the August showdown. Um, one of those one of those leaders, uh, Austin Cowles, says, you know, that they, he couldn't believe that anybody that they would have that the members would pick Brigham Young to do this because of this continuing of, of continuance of polygamy. Pretty well means that uh, he he predicted that the every Mormon would get kicked out of Illinois within two years uh, because this was doubling down on on the kind of secret practices that were making everybody, you know, so mad in the in the um, the Gentile environment around, around Nauvoo. So they have the, there's that group across the river. There's um, who's the guy who got kicked out. Um, Hinkle, the Hinkleites have a church in Iowa. Uh, and then Sidney Rigdon has to flee Nauvoo. He goes to Pittsburgh where he uh, reorganizes a church. Uh, and, and then a lot of times the, uh, a lot of these reformers kind of want to join up with him. And so he becomes kind of like the center for opposition to Brigham Young for a little bit of time. But Sidney Rigdon's church uh, goes through this whole issue that often happens with uh, would-be dissenting Mormon churches, which is that they decide, well, where did we go wrong? We need to get rid of certain things. So obviously we get rid of polygamy. We obviously are getting rid of the Council of 50. We're getting rid of this temple stuff. And then they keep going back and back. So Sidney Rigdon's um, newspaper is originally called the Messenger, Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate, which had been an old name for one of the previous papers. Then within a few issues, they change it to the Messenger and Advocate of the Church of Christ, because they go back to that earlier name before they change it to Latter-day Saint. And so in, in a lot of ways, um, that church becomes pretty dis- uh, uh, unstable pretty quickly, and it ends up within, I think, two years. They they try one of these Kirtland-style communitarian experiments where they all go move together on a farm to share property, and, and that goes very badly, and the whole thing atomizes. And so Sidney Rigdon isn't much of a threat very quickly. Um, but then, sort of very surprisingly, um, we mentioned James Strang, who uh, emerged as a as a very compelling alternative to to Brigham Young, and so as opposed to making the claims of uh, of familiarity, of 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 steering the ship institutionally, of holding the kind of keys and all that kind of thing that Brigham Young was doing, but with a lot of behind the scenes work, um, uh, but not having the kind of um, overt. Um, prophetic stuff that joseph smith had been doing in terms of like say new revelations new this and that all the time james strang um, immediately begins announcing all of these same kind of very familiar um, prophetic gifts so he uh he has a whole set of witnesses who dig up uh, a set of plates which he uh then translates and he has all sorts of other um 
you know, he announces that he is a prophet and he organizes the first presidency and this kind of thing. And so between um, his very compelling personality, um, he's ultimately able to gather together just kind of a whole, all of the base, it, basically everybody who's a dissident, <laughs> but a whole bunch of other people who, um, who maybe also are attracted to him because of uh, wanting to follow a prophet or somebody who's overtly acting like a prophet. So. Um, just very quickly, it is very amazing how quickly and broadly Strang grew his support. Um, the numbers of those who ended up following Strang are really difficult to tease out, but it's possible that upwards of one or two thousand saints in Nauvoo might have had serious affiliation with, with Strang once he started sending missionaries to Nauvoo and a number uh, of them eventually went up to uh, uh, Wisconsin and eventually Michigan. And um, it was a serious threat, especially once the Quorum of the Twelve uh, started moving west in 1846 and migrated out of, the, out of Nauvoo. Those saints who were left behind were especially uh, enticed by this call to don't move across into Nowheresville in the middle of Mexican territory. Why don't you stay in the in the Midwest and, and be part of the Strangite Church? And uh, Rob Jensen and I actually wrote an article about a showdown between one Strangite apostle and a Brighamite apostle in the shadow of the Nauvoo Temple uh, that had these meticulous minutes kept of the the two competing arguments that really um, represented the the divergent claims of these groups. Let's go back to the original question that I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Do you think that there's something to be said with people are more susceptible to, I mean, early saints would have been, would have seen many people step up and break off and start religions. To use that example, do you think that that's true, that the more leaders you see step up, the easier it is or the harder it is? Does that make sense what I'm asking? I think it's the more the more there is the easier the easier breakoffs are because it, it it creates a marketplace where um the the more divided the marketplace is the the more equal share the different people are going to receive and the core of the 12 recognizes and so one of the first things they did after they tried to centralize authority in fall of 1845 or fall of 1844 is they sent Parley Pratt and other apostles out to the East Coast to publish notices in all the Eastern Mormon newspapers that said, if you're reading a newspaper that does not have the impromptu or the Quorum of the Twelve, you are getting false information. They wanted from the very beginning to kill the idea that there are competing ide- competing options for the succession. Because they know that as soon as they're, as soon as people are exposed to various options, it's just commonplace in America then to go whichever with whatever option is best for you. So the best way to work within that atmosphere is to make it appear that there aren't multiple options and that there really is one objectively real valid path. And to extend this marketplace metaphor, one of the principles of participating in a free market system is having information available to you. And this in the 1800s was no small feat. So the Strangite movement was particularly strong in through Wisconsin. Yeah, he, he was headquartered initially okay. in Wisconsin and then later Michigan. Yeah, and this issue of geography contributed to to other uh, schisms in this same time period, the uh, Church of Christ, Temple Lot 
Church, which was um, led by Menasseh Hedrick, was a, came about because there was a group of the members in Illinois who were disconnected from the Nauvoo Church enough that they came under the leadership of, of Granville Hedrick. Uh, in the time period following the saints' movement out of Nauvoo. So the saints are moving out of Nauvoo under the uh, leadership of the Twelve, and meanwhile left behind in Illinois, and I think into part of Indiana, there are a number of uh, Mormon branches who essentially become unaffiliated with a leadership vacuum, just due to the fact that the geography had distanced them from the leadership of the Twelve. And somewhat similarly, the saints in Texas under Lyman White, who had been sent to Texas by Joseph to sort of create a safe haven, possibly as a area for the saints to settle. Texas was one of the areas in in contention for um, the final settling place of the saints for what would become Zion. And so White was sent there to sort of reconnoiter this area And he ends up uh, refusing to uh, submit to the leadership of the Twelve and to recognize Brigham Young's authority. And ultimately, they unite under uh, William Smith for a time and eventually Joseph Smith III. But this issue of geography and information in this marketplace poses a large obstacle for the Twelve in consolidating all of the branches of the church because in the 1800s, it just simply wasn't possible to efficiently communicate with all the saints. So a really quick question before we go on to the aftermath really quick. I know we're running out of time. How many off the top of your head, how many schisms at this point are polygamous and how many are not? Does anyone know? That's a good question. The Quorum of the Twelve bases its claims, at least privately, on polygamy. That does not become public for a few years. John will probably correct me on this. I think a number of these groups, the leaders flirt with polygamy, but none of them really embrace it. Is that right, John? The the Whiteites are practicing polygamy very you know fully. I think they've built a they call it a temple an endowment house essentially down there in Texas, and so they are doing. I think full. I kind of think of them as being full Nauvoo era style Mormonism down there. Right, but that's about five years later, right? Yeah, so later. So it depends on when we're talking about. So yeah, so that they're initially maybe not entirely out of communion with with Brigham Young until he reorganizes his first presidency and that sort of thing. Likewise, initially, Alphaeus Cutler is also with the Twelve until he gets across Iowa and doesn't go any further. His group initially is polygamous, although they later purge. They later get rid of it, and they actually um, delete all memory of it, and so they cease to talk about it ever again. And so they were doing uh, that. William Smith, who does, or he's in Strang's Church for a while, but he gets kicked out for of Strang's Church for practicing polygamy secretly. So William Smith is secretly practicing polygamy, and he reorganizes his own uh, Williamite church, and ultimately gets kicked out of his own church for practicing polygamy. So it's not openly practicing it, but it's secretly practicing it in his case. And a lot of his um, followers are quite uh, vigorous opponents of polygamy. Everything, I think... Strang, okay, so Strang initially is a one of these a very articulate opponent of polygamy, and then he later becomes a polygamist. So he later, in translating the plates of Laban, the Book of the Law of the Lord, one of the Strangite Mormon books of Scripture, um, he discovers that 
polygamy is of God and takes plural wives. And so then that ends up causing a rift in his group. So some people do embrace it and stay with him and other people don't. So the, so I think those are the different groups who are with polygamy or not. Doesn't Rigdon also briefly, during the, the sort of dissolution as his um, movement and church is really falling apart, briefly begin to practice polygamy as well for a short time? I don't think so. He he definitely goes back to the old Kirtland stuff of trying to share property. After his first church dissolves, he ends up trying to... So that church atomizes, but the last, I think the last of the apostles that was called to that church, uh, William Bickerton, is the one who ultimately, when when the he maybe thinks of the headquarters in in Salt Lake as still now being headquarters of the of the movement, but then when Brigham Young and the people in Salt Lake come out in favor of publicly that they're publicly practicing polygamy, so that's a cause for a lot of the people who are against polygamy to reorganize. So, like you mentioned, Granville Hedrick, and then the reorganization in in the Midwest is another group, and the Bickertonites. They all then sort of at that time period start reorganizing their churches as non non polygamous churches. Meanwhile, Rigdon. It has has created another church sort of by a correspondence with a guy who uh, is leading Warren Post, who's leading a, a kind of another Rigdonite church. So, but I don't think it's polygamous. Does anyone want to go into the aftermath? I'm really quick. I mean, I, some of us are still living in the aftermath, so we know that my movement that I'm part of was the Brighamite movement that came across. If you can, if you can say that it's my movement, because of course. Since then, there have been schisms in that movement as well. But who wants to cover that part? My uh, knowledge drops off precipitously with the March West in 1847. Well, I'm not. I'm the one who's not a Brighamite. <laughs> <laughs> of all, of all okay, of you guys. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll just we'll just say Brigham comes here and let's start listening to episode 38, and then on, <laughs> and then and then we get into that. Well, we'll just say. The, the schisms don't stop. The schisms don't stop and they don't continue to stop. And one thing that I think a lot of LDS people might be surprised to know, at least I was, is that even the churches that stayed back continued to have breakoffs and splits and splits and splits. Right. And I think it's also important to recognize that at least during the territorial Utah period, you have splits going on in both ideological directions, both who, those who thought that the LDS church had become too conservative and that you see a more uh, liberal or progressive splinter groups, as well as groups who thought that the Mormon church had lost its way and had fallen into the throes of contemporary corruption and needed to restore its original uh, conservative purity. And so in, in a way that you're, you're getting breakoffs at either end, which just represents how fertile the, the soil was for Mormon descent. So could you make the argument that there's no such thing as a Mormon fundamentalist because we don't really even know what the fundamentals are? Yeah, I, I Matt Bowman made the argument a few years ago that the, the very term fundamentalism is, is very misleading in terms of uh, both in scholarly terms as well as just in popular usage that it, it just doesn't make sense in, in the way that we use it. Well, excellent. Is there any last thoughts you guys want to say to wrap this up to bring more context or maybe add or subtract from what we've said tonight? Um, I will say from, uh, if I can put on my academic hat for a moment, that scholars focusing more on schismatic uh, movements, you've seen a progression over the last few years that I think is quite heartening. It used to be that 
when we look at the schisms, we only look at the leaders. We, we wanted to focus on the Brigham Youngs or the Van- Joseph Smith III's or the Sidney Rigdon's, whereas what I really find heartening in the last few years is is those scholars looking at the schism from the perspective of the people on the ground. Because in a way, this this helps us get us help us understand what it was like to live as a Mormon in the 1830s and 1840s. And and they th- see things in ways that the church leaders didn't see. And uh, I think that's very crucial and very important. It adds more instability to our traditional narratives of Mormon history. And I think it also uh, ha- adds a, a really important lesson just in culture because it teaches uh, or at least reaffirms the idea that Mormonism or Mormonism, to use a plural term in the context of this podcast, is always something that's built from the ground up. It's not something that's just directed from these very schismatic leaders, but it's but these schismatic leaders, they would not have been able to make the history books if it weren't for thousands of individuals who, for one reason or another, decided that their ideas were uh, reasonable. And I think being able to shift our focus to how the common Latter-day Saint experienced this, not just the men in the councils, but also the women who are presented with new uh, gendered expectations in the various schismatic groups and the non-white bodies who uh, see different limitations or, or possibilities in these different movements. I, I think that's the the history that we're still that we're only starting to unearth, and I'm really excited about that. And I'm excited about that too because when we talk about Mormonism, it's always confusing when I say to people Mormons who aren't LDS, and people say, "What do you mean by that?" Uh, Mormonism is far bigger than just the LDS church. We've we've conflated Mormonism with the LDS church for so long that even when we did our conference down in Short Creek, we had some LDS scholars that kept talking about Mormonism as if it belonged, that the term Mormon only belonged to the Latter-day Saint movement. And it's great to see scholars that I respect and that are so smart and rigorous in their research starting to recognize that there isn't just one legitimate Mormon experience, and that's LDS, that it's broader than that. So I appreciate that. Somewhat relatedly to, to this idea of Mormonisms and broader, more complicated Mormon narrative is that I expect that probably for a lot of people listening, this podcast sounded like quite a tangle of people and claims Um, all mixing together in ways that are a little bit hard to keep track of. And I think that while I regret that that probably makes this a little bit hard to, to grasp, that it's also that that tangle, I hope, communicates that fact that it is really complicated and that the common narrative that think a lot of us who grew up in the LDS tradition got was significantly oversimplified in terms of how we were taught and understood the succession, that it was truly a tangle of um, both people and claims and us and politic and secret and public spiritual practices. And what it all sort of amounted to was a construction of authority that was evolving throughout Joseph Smith's lifetime, continued to evolve after his death and after the initial succession crisis of of 1844 that we've been talking about, that these ideas of authority and spiritual, um, both in terms of 
the spiritual authority and in terms of governance authority have been evolving from the very beginning and evolved differently um, in each of the traditions that Brighamites moved west and as the other groups uh, sprang up in um, their locations, that authority in Mormonism is much messier than we often hear about on Sunday if uh, you are attending a typical LDS ward. And I think that's important just in understanding why and how even contemporarily schism groups can appeal to to people. Yeah, that's really good. And I think that that will um, make sense to a lot of people who we have listeners who have been in multiple groups. So they're definitely going to understand what that feels like when one church isn't serving them. And of course, in the LDS church, we're seeing this movement happening right now with the remnant movement, the snuffer movement, if you will. Um, where the man can fill up Marriott Conference Center in two days uh, with two days notice and fill it to the rafters with thousands of people. Yeah, there's definitely this this tradition in Mormonism. Hamer, do you want to say anything else before we go? Well, yeah, it's just that I I find this this topic endlessly fascinating. I thought this was a wonderful discussion of it. Uh, great people to you know bring out all kinds of different wonderful perspectives on it, and I do love that. We are also, when we do it, we're thinking about not just the different leaders and following them around, but remembering that the story here is about the individuals and about individual people. And and, um, in the Mormon tradition, obviously, we are very interested in family history. And so I'm always just reminded that in my my own family history here at Nauvoo and during that showdown that, you know, the one of um, my great-great-great-grandparents, you know, they had given you know, one of their, they had given their daughter and one of the underage plural wives of Joseph Smith. And so, uh, like we were talking about, she ended up getting married between to Heber Kimball and going out West. And meanwhile, their son, who was just absolutely against polygamy because of probably that reason, ended up moving East to Pennsylvania, where he became one of Rigdon's apostles, you know? So families were also divided by this. It's not just a esoteric institutional thing. And well, as you pointed out, just since it's continuing today, you know? Excellent. Well, thank you guys for all taking the time out of your night to do this yet again. Hopefully I won't have to ask you again in five years to re-record it. <laughs> but maybe, maybe, we'll see. Um, we'll be here if you need us. <laughs> I appreciate it. Okay, and uh, you guys can send me links, so I'll link to anything, and uh, people can reach out to you through your blogs. And yeah, thanks for coming, and everyone have a good night. Good night. Thanks, Lindsay. Great to hear you, Danielle, and John. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.